0: This morning's reading is going to be from Psalm 34, verses 1 through 18, almost the whole thing, but not quite. Uh, a psalm, of, psalm 34, a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Ambimelech, who drove him away and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. Well, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. Young lions do lack and suck for hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit.
1: Good morning, everybody. Um, want to invite our children to Children's Church. Kathy, will meet you at the back there. Um, as they are going, I just want to make a little bit of an announcement before I pray so it's in context. So um, Joel and Ashley are in the Czech Republic and they're doing uh, like a VBS kind of thing Uh, helping a a local church there and so I got a text from uh, Joel this morning and and uh, orientation is going well they get down to business today so I think he really was asking for our prayers as they get to what they're there for so let's let's go ahead and pray Um, Lord what a great song to say by grace and grace alone uh, by your love your unearned love and by your unearned love alone we are saved and Lord, you've done that through faith and through faith alone, not our good works, not our our zeal, not our um, attitude, but Lord, through faith and through faith alone. And Lord, it's because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that those things are true. And thank you for making us yours. Thank you for drawing us to you. Lord, we want to pray for Joel and Ashley and the whole team that's in the Czech Republic today. Uh, Lord, as they gear up to have the uh, campers show up and, and uh, to begin to Um, share and to just have an impact in their lives. Lord, we pray that you would uh, heighten and maintain team unity, that uh, everybody involved uh, to put this camp on would be uh, focused on the main goal, which is not necessarily personal comfort or um, the spotlight, but Lord, it's, it's to help these young kids see who Jesus is. And also Lord, connect them with the parents as well. I pray that there'd be opportunities there for them. So, Lord, would you grant them peace? Would you grant them security? Would you grant them um, relationship? That's something we can't fake or or make up, Lord. Um, And just make them a a positive impact in in the Czech Republic for your glory and for uh, your church. And, Lord, now as we turn to the second part on prayer, um, Lord, we need your help here. And so, Lord, asking for prayer, we pray. Be with us. Lord, open your word to us and help us to understand. Holy Spirit, make it, make it apply for us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we did a theology of prayer. What is prayer? What do we say it was or what was it about? And I started off with kind of a general statement about prayer. If somebody walks up to you and goes, what's prayer? You might say it's talking to God, which was true. It's not bad. But then by the end of the sermon, we'd flesh that out to a more Christian definition of what prayer is which is prayer is a scripture-formed personal communication with a triune God. And so that makes it much more specific. And so today we're going to do the second part of this, which is the Christian practice of prayer. And um, can, can you turn it up a little bit? Some people can't quite hear. Give it a little boost, maybe. Uh, so we're going to do the Christian practice of prayer. And um, I've been kind of grousing all morning about this topical sermons are really hard. They're not my thing. I would rather just go verse by verse because then I don't have to think about it. God's already laid it out for me, but topical ones are hard, and so this has been overwhelming, and it's not just because it's a topical sermon. When I got to the practice of prayer, I thought, now how am I going to do this? So I looked on christianbook.com, and I searched for prayer. There were 5,811 products available on prayer. So I went to Lifeway, which is, you know, the Southern Baptist bookstore, slimmed it down a little bit. There are 1,770 products on prayer. So I figured, okay, Westminster Theological Seminary bookstore, that's definitely a very narrow, you know, kind of thing. 226 books on prayer. I couldn't even figure it out on Amazon. I didn't even know how to count that. And I just thought, what on earth are we gonna do? How am I gonna get my arms around all of this literature and presented in a way in 40 minutes that makes sense, and it was just overwhelming. It was just, I couldn't think how to do it, but then as I was, you know, kind of laboring under this, it hit me. There are a lot of books on prayers. There is a ton of literature on prayer, and, and the reason that there is a ton of literature on prayer is because people are interested in prayer and find it difficult, so they demand more books. And this isn't just recent books. This has been going on since pretty much the close of the canon. You can go through the church fathers and see them writing on prayer. Augustine answered somebody. A woman asked, how do I pray better? And Augustine in the fifth century said, this is how you do it. Luther at the Reformation, he wrote a pamphlet for his barber. His barber said, Luther, how do I pray? And on and on it goes. It's difficult to pray. And and so people want answers to this. There is a man named um, Dean C.J. Vaughan. He was a 19th century Anglican scholar. And he once said, If I wish to humble anyone, I should question him about his prayers. I know of nothing compared to this topic for its sorrowful self-confessions. So you're not alone, brothers and sisters. Oswald Sanders, who quoted the other guy, uh, he's a 20th century missionary and uh, author. In his book, Spiritual Leadership, he said, most of us find it hard to pray. we do not naturally delight in drawing near to God. We sometimes pay lip service to the delight and the power of prayer. we call it indispensable. We know the scriptures call for it yet we often fail to pray. So is this just a product I mean these are all you know more recent folks is this just this a product of modernism of modernity of the idea that you know this material world is all there is? Um, well no, because there's somebody before that there's a man named uh, uh, Paul Bunyan, and he wrote the book, um, or John Bunyan, I wrote Paul. <laughs> Paul Bunyan was the guy with the ox. <laughs> I don't think he prayed. He chopped things down. John Bunyan is, the, uh, is a 17th century uh, pastor, preacher, and writer. He wrote one of the best-selling books ever, which is Pilgrim's Progress. He was arrested because he was in England, Puritan England, and he was not licensed to preach. And so they arrested him. And all he had to do to get out of jail was say, I promise I'll never preach again. Instead, he stood at the bars and preached out the window to anybody who would pass by and listen. This was a man who was dedicated to the Lord. So he must have surely had an easy time praying, right? Well, he happened to write on prayer, another one. And what he said is, he says, as for my heart, when I go to pray, I find it so loath to go to God And when it's with him, so loath to stay with him, that many times I'm forced in my prayers to first beg God that he would take my heart and set it on himself in Christ. And when it's there, that he would keep it there. No, many times I know not what to pray for. I am so blind, nor how to pray. I am so ignorant. Only blessed be the grace of the Spirit who helps our infirmities. So brothers and sisters, if you have a hard time praying like I do, If it's a struggle, please know you are not alone. And so what I thought of when I was reviewing all of this literature and and all of this, instead of talking about the practice of prayer, instead of saying, here's a method to do it, or here's a handful of methods to do it, that doesn't answer the first question, which is why am I slow to do it? So when it comes down to it, the, the best method for prayer is the one you will actually do, right? There are plenty of books on, on, on ways to uh, structure your prayer life and, and prayer cards and prayer journals and those kind of things, and they're all great, and I'll probably even mention some of them. But I don't think that's going to solve our problem of how do Christians practice prayer? How do we get to the point where we go, I'm going to pray? And so what I want to do this morning is talk about that draw to prayer. What is it that pulls us into prayer? Now I was helped by a book on prayer. <laughs> get a theme going here? Um, I was was at wit's end, I met with a couple of pastor friends of mine, and I confessed my, my utter confusion, and a friend said, well, take a look at John Stark's book, The Possibility of Prayer. And so I went home and I got it, and I took a look, and it's wonderful, it's really helpful. John Stark is a pastor in Manhattan, so he's a preacher, he's a pastor of preaching, but he's also an author, and he has some really great words on prayer. So I'm going to lean on him a bit here. I'm not preaching his book, but I'm leaning on him a bit in this sermon. So if I quote him two or three or four times, you'll know why. He's he's a pastor. He's a preacher. So he says good things. He says things well. And so we're going to look at that And, and almost positive, the next time we restock the Trinity Reads table, the possibility of prayer will be out there. It's that good of a book. So what he did that I found helpful was he took a look at Psalm 34. And he he worked through the the stanzas of it in a way that I thought would be useful for us. So that's what we're going to do this morning, is we'll work through this first part of Psalm 34. And I'm really glad that when Jim read, he read the header at the beginning. So if you look in your Bible, you'll often see in bold letters, uh, this one in in the ESV says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's not inspired text. That's not part of the Bible. That is the editor's header over the, the psalm. Underneath that you'll see in small caps of David when he changed his appearance before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. That's part of the inspired text. In the Hebrew Bible, that's verse one. In in the Greek in the, the, the um, English Bible, the next verse is verse one. We don't have an edition that doesn't have these headers in it. So I think it's safe to say this is part of the inspired text. So what's going on here? This is the setup. This is kind of the explanation of the psalm, and it will really actually help us as we understand it. So let me kind of recount what's going on. Uh, 1 Samuel 21, Saul is king, and he has lost his mind. He is just blind angry at David. He is terrified David is going to take over. And so David flees. He takes off. And as as he's running away for his life, Saul's men are chasing him. And so what what David did is he turned and he went to the city of Gath, which is a Philistine city. This was a brilliant maneuver because Saul would have to make the equation. Do I invade Gath to get David and then risk war with the Philistines or do I just let it go and catch him when he comes out? So it was a good maneuver to get rid of the tail. The problem was, does Gath sound familiar in context of David? There's a great story of David when he was a young boy who killed a a giant named Goliath who was from the city of Gath. David just ran into the arms of essentially his enemies. So he got there and he could get arrested, he could get executed. They might grab him and say, hey, you're such a great military leader and press him into service. So what does David do? He gets there, he goes, good, I got rid of Saul and then he acts insane. Spit running down his beard, scribbling weird words on the walls. Just nuts. Now, in ancient culture, a crazy person was thought to either have been touched by God and and, and a huge blessing on them and they they just don't make sense to us or cursed by the gods. And so, generally speaking, in those ancient cultures, you didn't want anything to do with crazy people because they could be good or bad. You don't know what's going on. And so that's what happened is uh, Achish, the the king of of Gath, says, do I need another crazy person in my kingdom? Get him out of here. And so David then is released. He's sent away, and so he leaves. Now, look at the the brilliant strategy of this. He's gotten rid of his pursuers, and he got away from his enemies, and it was just a great maneuver. It was a good thing. Now, here's the question. The king of Gath is Achish. Why does the header of this psalm say Abimelech? Because the name Abimelech isn't necessarily a personal name. It's more of a title. It consists of two Hebrew words, Abi which is my father or the father of, and Malach, which is the Hebrew word for king. So the title, Abimelech, is father of the king. And so, of course, who's the father of the king? Well, he's a king before the king who takes the throne. So it's probably speaking in that kind of reverential term, the more generic term of uh, royalty than it is the person. So this is Akish. Uh, is the king of Gath, and that's who drove David away. So that's the context of it. That's the story behind Psalm 34. So let's take a look at what Psalm 34 has to say about prayer, which is not specifically named in it, but you'll see it really apply. So Psalm 34 verses one through three, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So David's response to his brilliant tactical escape from Saul and his enemies was not, man, am I good. Check me out. Did I pull that one off? It was my acting. It was obviously my great acting that I could do the spittle and the the babbling and all. You know, I pulled it off. David is smart enough to know there were tremendous risks in this whole thing. What happened if the the men from Saul caught him before he got to Gath? He's dead. What happens if he goes rushing into Gath and word gets out that David's here? Because what they say in Psalm 21 is they go, this is David who has said Saul killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And that's us. (laughs) We're the ones he killed. What if if the uh, Gathites, the Gathians, the people of Gath, just arrested him and executed him on the spot? It was tremendously risky. So yes, it was brilliant, but it was also totally in God's hands. So His response is not "What a smart boy am I," but rather, "I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise will be continually in my mouth." The only reason this scheme worked is because God made it work. Had I been on my own, I'd be gone. So He He begins by praising the Lord, and He makes this tremendous promise. He says, "His praise shall continually be in my mouth." Does that sound kind of familiar? Last week, I quoted from 1 Thessalonians where Paul said, pray continually. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Does that mean that David never spoke another word except for the praise of God? Well, no. Does that mean that that we should pray and never do anything but pray? Every moment of our life should be consumed with prayer. No, but what it does say is our attitude, our approach, our life should be oriented in these ways. So when David says, his praise will continually be in my mouth, How can he orient his life in that direction? How can he say, my life will be geared towards praising God? The answer is kind of surprising, boasting. He's going to boast. That's what's going to orient his life towards God. Now, in the Bible, there is good boasting, there's neutral boasting, and then there's really bad boasting we tend to specialize in the bad boasting or messing up the neutral boasting. We don't often do the good boasting, but it has a very important purpose. It has a very important place in what's going on. So David says that he is going to boast in God. He says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord, not in me, but in the Lord. That's the good kind of boasting. The neutral kind of boasting is, um, if you get, we got a new refrigerator. And when people come over, I I tell them about our refrigerator. The best thing about this refrigerator is the ice. It's soft ice. I mean, I I didn't even know that when I bought it. I'm boasting in my refrigerator. We got our bathroom remodeled. If you come over, I may marshal you into my master bathroom so you can admire how wonderful my bathroom is. I'm boasting in my bathroom. You could boast in a new job or a pay raise or you found the perfect blouse or, you know, whatever it is, there's tons of things that you boast in. Boasting can be good or it can be bad. What it means, though, at its root is this is what I find delightful. I found something beautiful here, something I desire, and I want to share it with you. I want you to see it. That's boasting. So David says, I will boast in the Lord. So go ahead and put the picture up. So I want to show you this this picture real quick. So this was probably 1995, I'm guessing, 1994. I was in, in Korea until 1994, and the guy on the far left over there, he was in Korea with me. So I'm guessing it was 95. And um, the other way you can tell it was 95 is because if you look at the uniforms, we got the battle dress uniforms, the, the desert camo. And when we got those in the early 90s, you had stripes and name tapes and everything, but they took it off and they put these little stupid leather patches on. And you couldn't tell an officer until you were right on top of him because he had this stupid little leather patch, no, no insignia or anything. And so I'm guessing it's probably around 95. Do you see what I just did? Who's the most significant person in this picture? Is it me? The one you care about is the gentleman in the middle wearing the flight suit, General Chuck Yeager, a World War II ace in the uh, P-51 Mustang, the man who broke the sound barrier for the first time and lived to tell about it, one of the greatest test pilots we've ever seen, and I blew him off. I talked about me. That's bad boasting. What good boasting is is when you recognize in this picture, I am not the most important person. I I am not the central thing. I'm not the one everybody's eyes went to when I put this picture up. You need to remember that when it comes to boasting and boast in the right things. So what should you boast in? When you come to looking at your life and you're you're anticipating troubles or, or triumphs or whatever it is, you don't look and go, dude, it's all about me. I am so cool. You are not the most important person in that picture. You are not Chuck Yeager. Sorry, you're just not. You have to say, there's something more going on here. I need to back off and go, okay, who's the most significant person in this picture? God, God is the most important person in this picture. Yes, I escaped from uh, Saul's men. Yes, I escaped from the Gathites. Yes, I got away from the Philistines. But you know what? I'm secondary. God is the most important thing. And so we're going to boast in what's most important to us. Boasting in the Lord, this is the quote from the book, boasting in the Lord, what he says is, it's an act of pushing what is most lovely, that is God, into the center of our desires. When you're boasting, you're pushing God to the center of your desires. I'm not in the center of the picture. You're not in the center of your picture. So here's the problem, if you go to prayer, and you are at the center of the picture. If you're the most important thing there, you're gonna get really frustrated in prayer because it's not about you. Have you ever met somebody and you say, hi, my name is Tim, and in three, three words, they're talking about themselves. They, they never stop to ask about you. If you go to prayer and you're at the center, you're in danger of doing that very thing. It's about me. And why isn't God answering me? Why isn't he talking? Because it's me, 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 me. And that's the danger. That's why we have to follow David here and boast in the Lord move the Lord to the center of our affection. So when we do, we say, I'm gonna pray, and what I expect from prayer is time with God. Not answers, not gifts, not goodies, not you know everything like that. I want more of God in this. And so my heart, I will boast in the Lord. Even in prayer, I will boast in the Lord. And what did I say before? I said what humility is, is saying, I agree with God as to who I am. That's what humility is. And that's what David says. When we put God at the center, when we make him our boast, let the humble be glad. Let the humble hear and be glad. It's good news to the humble to say, God is the most important person person in this picture, not me. But I get to be there. It's, It's good news that I get to be there, that's great. So that's humility, and that's what he's calling us to. David is demonstrating for us this is what it looks like to have God at the center as you're humble. And then the other part that he says is verse 3 Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. What did I do when I got a refrigerator? I talked to everybody about it. I got this new fridge. When you have something you absolutely delight in, move to the center of your desires, you can't shut up about it. You tell other people why, because a joy shared is a joy doubled. I get to enjoy that. I want you to enjoy this with me. I want you to be happy with me. So when we've moved God to the center of our desires, we're going to pursue him in prayer. I want more of you in prayer, not more of me. And then when I get more of you, I'm going to tell other people about it. I just can't shut up about it. So maybe the answer in that in the context of prayer is how can I pray for you? I want more of God. I want more of God in your life too. And how can I pray for you? What can I do? So what we have to do, first of all, is David tells us we have to center our heart, but we have to center it on God, not ourselves. So the next section, verses five through seven, David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who lick to him are radiant and their faces are never ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. So Stark again says, seeking the Lord is not asking for something of God. So when David says, I sought the Lord, he was not saying, I sought the Lord so that I would get that new refrigerator. I should have a picture of the refrigerator up there. That's that's at the center of this sermon. but what he's saying is, he says, I sought the Lord for the Lord's sake, not for my sake. I sought the Lord. So seeking the Lord is not just asking something for him. Seeking a thing and asking God for it is moving him out of the center again. David is seeking the Lord for himself, for who he is. And here's the great promise. He answered me. So as David's fleeing, he's, he's running from Saul's men and he's trying to figure out what to do. He cries out to the Lord and he, he embarks on his plan and the Lord heard him, he delivered him. So prayer is this personal communication, right? It's, it's not speaking truth into the universe or good things into the universe or something. You are addressing a person, not a human person, but a person And so it's personal communication. It is, Lord, let me call out to you. I want more of you. I I seek you in all of this. And since the Lord actually cares about you, since he's very interested in you, he wants to hear what you want, even though he already knows it. He wants more of you. And that then means you'll want more of him. So if you go to prayer and you don't start with your laundry list, Lord, the, the, um, the sink's backed up, um, I'm a little bit worried about making payday, I don't know if I've got enough money, my car's acting funny, um, my, my kids are in school and they're not doing great, and, and you don't go to him with this laundry list, but instead you come to him and say, Lord, I just want more of you. Who are you? Show me more of who you are. Do you lose in that equation? Do, do you go, I, I didn't gain all of those other things? Not at all. I mean, that's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if you aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you'll get neither. Similar thing here, if you aim at God, you'll get everything else thrown in. If you aim at just the stuff, you've got a pretty good chance of missing it. So here's the benefit, you seek God and you gain everything else. That's what Jesus said in uh, Luke 12. He said, and do not seek what you are, or, yeah, do not seek what you are about to eat, or what you are, nah, let me try that again, I blew it. <laughs> and do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows what you, knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you." So what do you lose by seeking God first? Absolutely nothing. What do you gain? You get God first. And then he knows what you need, and he will add all these things unto you. He's talking about food, what you're, what you're worried about eating. That's a tremendous promise in prayer. But the promise is seek the Lord first. I will seek him. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never ashamed. What do they lack? Have you ever met somebody like that? You just meet them and they're, man, there's something about this person. This is a person who is seeking after the Lord first. And they gain all those other things. It's great news. So you have to, first of all, center your heart. Then you seek the Lord. And then the next thing you have to do is tune your tastes. So here's what he says next in verses 8 through 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So what we have to do is we have to tune what our appetites are after. What's our desire? Now, this isn't where the thing starts, right? This is seek the Lord, you know, this has already brought us to this point. But your tastes are what's important. We are basically creatures of desire. We're built to love and we will seek, we will gravitate towards the things that we desire. So what we have to do is tune our tastes. And, And Stark again, quoting him one more time. If we've grown accustomed to foods that are superficially sweet, Good food with complex and subtle flavors can taste bland or bitter, but if we refrain from sugary foods for a while, we begin to experience flavors we haven't noticed before. Once our palate has been cleansed and we've experienced the depths of flavor on offer, it's less appealing to go back. Kind of the opposite of that, I was drinking Diet Coke for a long time, and then I switched to regular Coke, the sugary kind. And the, the change was jarring because it was so thir- syrupy and thick. And then when I went back to Diet Coke, I was like, this stuff is really bitter. The point is, you can tune your tastes. You can adjust them. You can make them taste different ways. The American diet is the way it is because it's been tweaked by the food industry. I ordered black pepper chicken from a, a, a Chinese restaurant. And when it got delivered, the first bite I got was all sugar. I didn't taste any black pepper in it. It was terrible because that's what America's preferred. Why do we do that? Because if you eat more sugar, then you want more and it's it's a a vicious cycle. But you can tweak, you can adjust your appetites. But you have to work at it. You don't just say, well, today I'm not going to eat that stuff. You have to stick with that for a while and your taste will begin to tune. It will begin to adjust. You'll be able to taste things differently. So recognize that the world around us is arrayed to distract you. It's just built that way. The the video games that we have or the the social media posts, they are designed, they are engineered to give you dopamine hits in your brain. When dopamine hits your brain, it's feel-good. And so every time somebody likes or thumbs up your post or reposts it or, you know, comments or something, that's a dopamine hit and it draws you back to it. It's designed to draw you away to their platform and to distract you and keep you on there. For us, we have to be aware that these, these flashing images, these death scrolls, where you just keep scrolling after, one after another, after another, after another, the reason they work is because they're triggering your brain on these, these positive hits every once in a while. And it's different times, so you don't know when to stop. You have to fight that. You have to say, that's the sugar in the diet that I need to get away from and instead go to something that's more subtle. The Lord is there and we have to tune our taste to him. But it's difficult because he says, listen to me, and um, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do you take refuge from good things? Oh my gosh, somebody's gonna show up at my front door with a suitcase of money. I better take refuge from them. No, you run to to good things. What he's saying here is, taste and see that the Lord is good and then take refuge in Him. Flee to Him when those struggles come. This is something I had to do this this past week is I had um, Call of Duty Mobile on my iPad. And I just love that game, it's a lot of fun. I had to take it off my iPad because what I found I would do is I would be working on something, I'd get into a thought, I'd get reading, and okay, that's a good idea. And then I'd stop for a second, I'd play that game, and it was like somebody hit a reset button on my head. I couldn't remember what I was thinking of before, so I had to finally delete it. I had to walk away from that and go, there's something better, there's something more. There's, there's something greater than this. Even though this is a blast, it's a lot of fun, it's not gonna do it. And so that's what, what um, um, David is showing us, is he's saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't take my word for it, taste. Engage. It's more than just a mental process. It's all of your being. It's all your feelings, all of who you are. Taste and see that he's good. You have to tune your tastes. So take the time to do that. And what you'll find is as you tune your taste to God, you'll have less time for those other things and prayer will begin to move more towards the center. Why? Because I want more of God. I'll get more of God when I study his word and when I pray. I stop and I listen to him and I communicate with him and, and we're together. And so that's, that's what we have to do is we have to tune those tastes, dial them into where they're supposed to be, and put those other things aside. This gets a little meta at this point. It, it's kind of like David knew what he was talking about or something, like he might have been inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote this or something. But the next section is, is to learn from others. So verses 11 through 14, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he should see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Listen to the experiences of others, David says, as he's recounting his experience with Abimelech or Achish. He's he's kind of going, look, I'm, I'm already doing it for you. Listen to me, children, pay attention. I'm telling you a story. I'm telling you of the goodness of God. This is a way that you can be invited in to taste the goodness of the Lord. Listen to other people. Stark again, he says, if you share wisdom with me from your spiritual life, I will have more wisdom than I did before, but you won't have less. Something wonderful has been multiplied creation has occurred, knowledge of holy things has spread from your heart to mine. It's been planted in me as it grows deeper in you. So that idea of sharing that wisdom, of going to another mentor, somebody who else is, is, is a friend of yours who you can communicate with, who you can spend time with, when you draw wisdom from them, you gain and they gain. That's, that's the mathematics of the kingdom is there's no loss here. It only gets better. There's more to it. So listen not just to uh, how-tos for prayer, though that's not a bad idea. How do you pray? How do you keep your prayers in order? How do you think of what you're going to pray for in the day? What's your plan? Do you have an organizer? Do you have, a, you know, write down things on pieces of paper? How do you do it? That's not a bad thing to do. But you can also listen to their life experiences. And then as you engage with them and you say, well, let's pray for that then you're watching. How is the Lord gonna answer that prayer? You're tasting and seeing that the Lord's good beyond yourself. You're doing that with somebody else. There's a wonderful book on prayer called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And uh, Paul Miller is, um, he's, he's written on this. He's got a uh, praying life ministry and they'll come and do seminars and stuff. But the thing that really shaped him was Paul has a very autistic daughter and the book, is really him telling stories about his life with his autistic daughter and and the dawning realization as she's growing up that she's not going to be able to live on her own, that that she is profoundly different. And yet, what Paul says through this book is, she taught me so much about prayer just by being herself. And so that's an example of looking to somebody else and saying, what's your life experience like? What's been happening? And at the same time, he's sharing the prayer life with you and saying, this is what I learned. Walk with me in it. So if you want a book on how to do prayer, how to organize your prayers and stuff, Praying Life is really good by Paul Miller. Um, he, he's got some really good structured ways to organize your prayer life. It, it's, it's recommended, but I think the big benefit is not his prayer cards. I think it's the story of his daughter. I think that's the best benefit in watching this man walk in faith with her. So David's teaching us that, that prayer will not guarantee an answer from God every time but instead, he's offering us something even better than, I asked for this and I got that. Instead, what he's, saying, he's teaching us is to fear the Lord. To say, Lord, all of these things are in your hand and you can do as you want with them. And I'm trusting him to you. And I'm hands off. Fear the Lord. So that, that's the problem is, and I think it's one of the reasons we don't, we aren't immediately drawn to prayer is because it doesn't work sometimes. So a couple of years ago, there was a shooting in Texas, as there is again, and one of the senators from Texas tweeted something about prayers, you know, we're praying for the families. And an actor named Will Wheaton replied, if prayer worked, they'd all be alive. So he's looking at prayer as you ask and you didn't get it, so it doesn't work. It was kind of crass. He, fortunately, about an hour later, he apologized to people of faith, but the thought is, why doesn't prayer work? Well, prayer does work. But remember, we're praying to a person. And this person is infinitely wise and infinitely powerful. And that's why we have to have the fear of the Lord. That's what David is going to teach us in prayer. And the fear of the Lord, remember we talked about that a while ago in in 1 Peter, it's not a fear that drives you away, it's a fear that draws you in because it's so beautiful. So that's where he goes with this, is is he's gonna have the fear of the Lord. And what does the fear of the Lord give you? Does it take everything away from you and leave you empty? No, he talks about many days and seeing good. But it starts by saying, Lord, I'm gonna let you define what is good. Lord, I'm gonna trust you that you know what's best in this situation. So again, prayer is not a way to get what you want to get the stuff, a prayer, Prayer time, especially uh, set aside time for prayer, is a way to get more of God, which will then fill in all of those needs. So that's, that's what David is telling us here. And so the last part is the hard part. Verses 15 through 18. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Troubles cultivate prayer. So you can look at the troubles in your life and say, this isn't fair, it's not right. I didn't want this, this is terrible, this came this way. And it's not right, it's not good. Troubles shouldn't be there. But in this full and broken world, they are. And so the question isn't, are they fair or not? It's, what do I do with them? And so what David is telling us is, use those troubles to cultivate prayer in your life. Let the trouble that you have be pushing you towards prayer. And again, it's not to get out of the trouble. It's not to make the problem go away. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and they hear, hear, he hears their cry. They're crying. That's actually happening. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. So, this is where trouble in our life can actually be a motivator to prayer. It's easier to slide out of prayer when we're comfortable, when things are going smooth. I learned that on a trip to Burma where I was just used to this life. And it's pretty comfortable and I don't have to pray about what I'm going to eat. You go to the grocery store and there's a whole aisle, yards of bread or a whole frozen section where I can get entire meals made. I didn't have to worry about that. Get out into the mission field and then the question comes up, well, what are you going to do now? What's next? I don't know. I better pray. (laughs) It's a great opportunity to learn how to pray. It's hard for us to pray in this situation because we're comfortable, because we're secure. Praise God that we're comfortable and secure. I'm not complaining. Lord, I'm not complaining, I promise. But that can be a hindrance. It can be a real struggle to prayer. So when troubles do come into your life, pray against them. Pray to be delivered for them. Cry out to the Lord. Why did God deliver Israel from Egypt? Because their cries reached his ears. He heard them. You can go through scripture after scripture and say that's, that's what happens, is God hears and he delivers his people. That's why Jesus came, is he heard our cries and he came to deliver us. So we were, when we run out of our own resources, that's when we stop counting on ourselves and we go, I need the fear of the Lord. So that, that's the picture that David has painted for us. Now there's another stanza after this, but I didn't wanna to take too much time on it. So just a reminder again, How do we cultivate this this sense of prayer? How do we get to the point where we want to pray, where it's not so foreign to us? Center your heart. You can do that. You can center your heart. You can boast in the Lord. You can look for those things. Write them down. When you're reading the scriptures, it's helpful to stop every once in a while. You ever read and you you read a, a sentence and you go, wait a minute. I've read the Bible a dozen times. I don't remember reading that before. And stop then and meditate on it and look at it. If you read something and you go, that's weird. I don't understand that, that's a weird way to say that. Stop and meditate on it, chew on it. Or if you read something, you go, oh my gosh, that is so beautiful the way they said that. That's, That's a time to tune your heart, to cultivate your heart towards God through his word. Tune your tastes, recognize the sugar in your diet and cut it out. You can indulge it once in a while, but don't make it the major portion of your diet. Tune your tastes to want something better, something more savory, something more rich than those cheap, quick dopamine hits we get from our culture so much. Learn from others. Take somebody out. Talk to them. Just sit and chat and share your life with them. Be listening for opportunities to pray. How can I pray for you? Oh, that's, I'm sorry that happened. I'll pray about that. That's great news, let's pray. Learn from others, God saved us into community on purpose. And then finally, troubles are not happy, they're not supposed to be there, we'd rather they weren't, but let troubles cultivate your prayer life. Let let that draw you into it. So with all, all four of these things, you have to be intentional. There has never been a person who drifted into a rich prayer life. There have been people God has dragged into a rich prayer life by amplifying troubles and and, uh, difficulties in their life, but nobody just sat there and drifted into it. You have to be intentional with these things. And if you don't do the first three, center your heart, tune your taste, learn from others, when troubles come, you won't actually let them cultivate prayer because your heart's not ready for it. Now, God can overrule this and he can start with trouble and drive you to prayer. Would you rather do it the right way and kind of, you know, arrive there in a good place? Then then let's follow what he has to say here. Trouble will be a big challenge if you're not already approaching those kind of things in prayer. So this is a lesson from David. There's so much more that could be said on prayer. I mean, like I said, how many books? 5,000 something? 6,000 books? There's so much more that could be said on prayer. There's plenty of things that talk about the techniques and how to do it and how to... What works best is the one that you'll actually do. So do that, do that thing. Um, write it down, plan ahead, write your prayer out, whatever it is that works for you, do it. Um, and so that's, that's the call that we have to prayer. This is how we can pray continually, is by having that attitude where you bump into a, something and the first thing out of your mouth is a prayer instead of a curse word. That's, that's the way that you cultivate that in your life. Uh, so we're, we're done with this, this topic of prayer. What I want to remind you to do though, is I want to encourage you, write down your prayers. Keep a, a piece of paper in your, wall, in your uh, Bible or you know, a notebook or something, and just for the next couple of months, write down your prayers and gather them up. And in about three months, we'll get together as a church and we'll have a special service and we'll say, how'd your prayers go? How did God answer your prayers? Who did you pray for? How did you see him answer those things? And we'll share and say, this is what I've been praying about, and look what the Lord's done. And I'm hoping that that will be an encouragement for all of us to pray even more, too. So that's coming in, in about three months. What we're going to do next is we're going to do Second Peter, because the Lord so far hasn't redirected me. Um, so that's what we're going to do at this point. And, um, so that's what we'll be starting next, next week. So with that, let me close this in word of prayer. Lord, I'm I'm right there with John Bunyan when he said um, that my heart is loath to go to you in prayer. And Lord, when I'm in prayer, it's loath to stay there with you. And so Lord, make me pray, draw me into prayer and give me the ability to pray well. And Lord, I pray that for all of my friends here today, all my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, would you, Holy Spirit, be at work in their hearts. Would you help them get over that initial hurdle of of entering into prayer? And Lord, meet them there in a very sweet experience and draw us into prayer as a church. Make us a praying people, we ask. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.